Good morning, church. I love it when we uh, just get to sing like that together, just our voices. It's such an encouragement. Um, for me, when I hear everyone else just singing along and worshipping God, uh, that's, what it's, that's part of what it's about to meet together on Sunday is that we actually encourage each other when we sing out to God with all of our hearts and souls together as a church. Hey, uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Ben. I'm the community pastor here and I'll just be leading us through these next few moments of our service. And uh, we're continuing on in the theme of rest this week by looking at Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30. So if you want to open up your Bibles there, Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30 is where we'll be uh, sitting in today and we're looking from the NIV, I believe. Last week we looked at Hebrews 4 and we discovered that God has an indescribable rest waiting for those who put their faith and their trust in him. We talked about the fact that, that there is a place that he has reserved for those who put their faith in, a place where we will stop, where there will be no more conflict, and where we will rejoice and celebrate God's goodness forever and ever. And now this week, uh, I want us to start by asking the question, how do you think about God? How do you think about God? What do you think about him? When I mention the word God, what, what emotions rise up in you? What's your vision of God? Maybe you see him as, as powerful and holy and, and unapproachable. Maybe if you're honest, you, you find him confusing and difficult. There might be others here today that, that think God is angry. That's what they think of when, when they hear the word God. For others, you might think he's loving. I don't know what it is for you, but what do you think about God? Because whatever it is, whatever you think is of the utmost importance. If you're a Christian, it is vital. I mean, what if you find out that you've been following a false idea of God? That you've never actually grasped who he is and so unknowingly you've been following someone who doesn't represent God at all. Do you see the importance of, of understanding God, of knowing who he is? What we think about God really matters. And if you're not a Christian, this is just as vital. I mean, because if you ultimately decide to reject God, don't you want to know who the God is that you're rejecting? I mean, what if you ended up rejecting the real God based on a false idea about God? What if you ended up saying no to a God of your own imagination? Don't you want to take the due diligence to know exactly who he is first? Well, immediately before the passage uh, we're looking at tonight, this morning, sorry, Jesus denounces some cities and towns that rejected him. He came to them and he performed miracles in their midst. The God of Israel came to Israel, these, these Israelite towns, as Jesus, and these towns rejected him. They did not listen to him. And it's kind of ironic that these people, the Israelites, their whole national identity is wrapped up in the fact that they worship the one God, Yahweh. And yet Yahweh came in the flesh and they rejected him. If that doesn't tell you that we can get our ideas about, about God kind of messed up, then I don't know what will. We can get our ideas confused about God. So it's important for us to lean in and listen to our passage today. For in it, we're going to learn a little bit more about who God is. And we're going to discover that 
who God is, is inseparably linked with the rest he offers. Who God is, is inseparably, inseparably linked with the rest he offers. Can I just ask the sound guys to lower the feedback a bit? I'm kind of booming up here a little bit. Alright, so in the passage this morning, Jesus is speaking, and he's going to tell us some things about God the Father and himself. So let's read the first two verses together and see what we learn. Here's what he says. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. So if you're taking notes this morning, the first thing that we're looking at, the first thing that we learn is that God loves to reveal himself to the lowly. God loves to reveal himself to the lowly. We see Jesus praise his Father because of how he works his plan to save the world. He hides the truth from those who think they know everything and reveals the truth to but simple children. The truth was often hidden from those with great knowledge of the scriptures. Many of the religious leaders and, and uh, the teachers of Israel rejected Jesus. And yet the truth was revealed to many of the most unlikely people. I mean, think about the disciples. They were unlearned, common, simple, even hated people. The man who wrote the gospel we're looking at this morning, Matthew, was a tax collector. And tax collectors were excluded from the religious system and seen as a traitor of Israel. And yet here he is in our passage bearing testimony to the, to the life of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So if we have any inkling of desire to know God for who he is, if we want to have a true vision of God, if we want to have correct ideas about God, then these first couple of verses are acting as a warning to us. They're telling us, don't presume to know everything there is to know about God. Don't come to him with all of your preconceived ideas and assumptions. God loves to reveal himself to little children, to people who are lowly, and humble and teachable. For God is pleased to hide the truth from the wise and learned, those who think they know it all, and reveal it to little, humble children. God loves to reveal himself to the lowly, to humble. The second lesson we get is in the next verse, and here's the second lesson. God the Father has chosen to reveal himself through God the Son. God the Father has chosen to reveal himself through God the Son. Verse 27. All things have been committed to me by my Father, Jesus says. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus here is making the exclusive claim that the path to God is only found through him. Only he truly knows the Father, and only he can reveal the Father to us. So Christianity is both radically inclusive and exclusive. It's radically inclusive for God loves to reveal himself to people that religion would usually exclude. He loves to reveal himself to the lowly, the unlikely, the looked over, the sinner, the rebel. Yet Christianity is also radically exclusive because it claims that Jesus is the single ultimate revelation of God. And this Jesus says that no one knows the Father except him, the Son, and those to whom he chooses to reveal the Father. 
Now, this exclusivity is not a popular idea in today's world. Our culture has moved away from the idea of absolute truth in many ways. Truth has become more of a subjective thing. It's something personal that you and I can define for ourselves. And I don't know if you've heard someone say this before, but I've heard it many times. Have you ever heard someone say, well, they're all the same God in the end anyway. Muslims and Hindus and Christians all worship the same God, just in different ways. I remember talking to one very kind uh, friend from university, and um, she said this to me. And it sounds tolerant, it sounds nice, but in the end it's actually kind of an arrogant statement. Because that statement basically says, even though you claim that your God is the only God, you're actually wrong. You don't see things as clearly as I do. You see all these gods, all these religions... It's the same God in the end. It's actually a false tolerance. It's not a real tolerance because it doesn't tolerate those with exclusive claims, like Christians or Muslims, for example. And also that that claim, that idea, doesn't make logical sense. If, for example, a Muslim person says God is red and a Christian person says God is blue, you can't then come and say, well, actually, those colours are the same colour. They're both the same colour. It doesn't make logical sense sense. If two people or two religions have two mutually exclusive ideas about who God is, they can't be the same God. Yet I'd say that this idea is possibly one of the most popular ideas in our culture today. So if you're in here this morning, friend, and, and you don't know Jesus and you're seeking, then this idea of subjective truth may just be one of those ideas that you'll have to lay aside if you want to discover the real Jesus. Remember how we talked about the fact that God hid himself from the wise and learned? If we want to know Jesus, we can't force him to fit into our wisdom or our cultural way of thinking. We can't come to him with our own preconceived ideas. We must allow him to speak to us on his own terms. If we force him to fit into our own assumptions, then we may not only miss him, but we may end up rejecting a God of our own imagination. So I'd encourage you, if that's an idea that you've believed, to maybe let that go and and let the Bible speak to you on its own terms. Let Jesus speak to you on his own terms this morning. Jesus makes the exclusive claim that he is the only way to God. That's number two. And the third point is that God the Son reveals himself to be humble, lowly, and gentle. God the Son reveals himself to be humble, lowly, and gentle. You see, after Jesus makes his very exclusive claim, he then puts out a very inclusive call. He calls out to anyone who is wearied and burdened to come to him. In verses 28 to 30, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now we need to understand the idea behind at least one of the words there to understand what Jesus is saying. He's talking to Jewish crowds, verse 7 we can see that. And there were a number of Jewish writings as well as teachers who used the word yoke to speak of the law. For example, one Jewish teacher said that 
He that takes upon himself the yoke of the law, from him shall be taken away the yoke of the kingdom and the yoke of worldly care. They spoke of the law as a pleasant yoke to come under. If you don't want to know what a yoke is, it's something that they would put over oxen or, or cows or whatnot as they're treading out. I'm not a farmer if I got that wrong, but they put this, this wooden uh, yoke over them so that they could pull easily and, and do their work more easily. That's what a yoke is. And so these religious teachers, these, these Jewish teachers, they spoke of the law as a pleasant, suitable, fitting yoke to come under. And often this yoke was really the Jewish teacher's interpretation of the law. So when I'm talking about the law, I'm talking about what the Jews would refer to as the Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible. It's the first five books of our Bible as well. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And uh, that's what they're talking about, the law. This pleasant yoke to come over, come under. But what these Jewish teachers were talking about was really their interpretation of the law. And for many people, this yoke was far from pleasant. It was burdensome. And this is why Jesus says this of the Pharisees. He says, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. The yoke refers to teaching. And Jesus is offering us a better yoke, a better teaching than the religious leaders of his day. In fact, the very next chapter goes on to give us an example of just how burdensome the teaching of the religious leaders was. Let me read it to you. Chapter 12 says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees were getting upset that the disciples were plucking these heads of grain and eating them on a day of rest, this Sabbath day. Now, what they were getting upset about was not the actual Torah, but what they call the oral Torah. So the actual Torah says, keep the Sabbath. In Exodus, for example, it says, keep the Sabbath holy, observe it. It's a day of rest. But the oral Torah was something that a group of Jewish teachers and rabbis came up with later and, and basically it created a whole, all these rules to help people understand what it means to keep the Sabbath. So then they would come up with different rules, like you can't pluck a head of grain and eat it on the Sabbath. That's work. You can't heal someone unless it's an emergency. That's work. That's, that's what they were talking about. That's what they were getting upset about. And Jesus disputes with them about this and, and disagrees with them and actually says, no, the Sabbath is about mercy, ultimately. It's about doing good works of mercy. And he goes on to heal someone on the Sabbath and they leave and they just decide that they want to kill him because he's breaking their religious system. So that's what they were getting upset about. Jesus' yoke was different to the other religious leaders. The yoke of the Pharisees seemed to be concerned with merely avoiding wrong, and it led to legalism and fear. Whereas Jesus often taught people what lay at the heart of the teaching in the Torah. The Pharisees probably believed that they were honouring God by strictly keeping all of the laws in the oral Torah. But this kind of yoke, this teaching of theirs, was actually heavy and burdensome for others. It created heavy, cumbersome loads for people to carry. And so Jesus comes out and speaks to the Jewish crowds and he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. 
Now today we might not have any idea about what the oral Torah is. That might not be the, the yoke that we carry, but we might have all sorts of other ideas and values and beliefs that don't belong to Jesus. And so many of us with these wrong beliefs find ourselves under difficult, crushing burdens. I was just talking to a brother this week. Um, he was expressing to me some of his spiritual frustration and he was talking about the fact that he often hears people talk about these amazing experiences they have with God or the way that they hear God's voice and he's desired that, he's desired that for so long but no matter what he does, he just can't seem to get that experience and it's more than frustrating, it's discouraging. And we just talked about the fact that sometimes we get these ideas about what spirituality is or what spirituality should feel like and we don't realize that they may not necessarily even be from the Bible. Sometimes we pick them up from our churches or from our Christian friends and we have these ideas that actually burden us down and they might not even be biblical. I'm not trying to say that God doesn't give us experiences or speak to us, but is that really the picture of maturity that he puts forward to us in the scriptures? I don't know what it is for you, but maybe for you it's uh, you have to keep up your Bible reading. And if there's just one day that you miss, you feel that you're not right with God, that he's upset with you, that you're disconnected from him, that he's not happy with you. Yet Jesus would tell us that what he did for us on our behalf is the only thing that secures our favour with God. Maybe for others of us we feel that because God's favour in Jesus is unconditional, that means that we can do whatever we want. That what we do doesn't really matter, that it doesn't have any consequences. Yet Jesus might come along and give us his yoke and, and teach us the truth and say, because I love you, there will be consequences. There will be ramifications because I love you. I want to change you. I want to transform you. Whatever yoke we are carrying, Jesus invites us to come to him. He invites us to trust him to lead us into life. To have the faith that his teaching, his ways lead to life. That they will actually lead to rest and refreshment for our souls. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now the reason that his yoke is better for us is not simply because the content of his teaching is different, but because the teacher himself is different. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. I love what one of the dictionaries says about that word for humble. It says, in some languages, the expression humble in spirit or humble in heart may be expressed as without shouting at others. Without shouting at others. I think that's beautiful. How do you see Jesus? How do you see God? What kind of teacher do you think he is? The truth is, he's nothing like the Pharisees who created fear and anxiety because of their constant watchfulness for a mistake or wrongdoing. Jesus is a loving, gentle, humble, approachable teacher. He doesn't shout and scream at you for picking a few heads of grain on the Sabbath. He's humble and gentle. He wants to lead you into life. 
He wants to give you rest. He wants to refresh your soul. He wants to teach you how to live well. This teacher is a pleasure to be around, a relief to be around. Try spending some time with him. Try sitting under his yoke. It's pleasant. It's good for our souls. Jesus is different to other teachers. This is part of the reason his yoke is a refreshment to our souls. But the content of his teaching is different as well. Yet not in the way we might expect. We might think that a restful, refreshing teaching might be a teaching that relaxes things, that relaxes the law. But you just need to read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7 to to see that in many ways Jesus ramps up the demands of the Old Testament, the law. He actually exceeded the standards of other religious leaders in many ways. So how can this kind of teaching actually be a light and easy burden for us? How can this teaching be rest for our souls? I mean, what's going on, Jesus? Well, like I said in the beginning, the rest that Jesus offers us is inseparably linked with him, with who he is. So apart from him, yes, that kind of teaching would crush us. Apart from him, we are completely unable to meet the standards of the law. Even though the law is good, the power of sin in us causes us to twist the law for evil purposes. Paul talks about it in Romans 7. He says, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Why? For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Sin is this evil power that saw the law as an opportunity to increase our rebellion against God. But you see, Jesus didn't just come as our teacher. He came as our saviour. He took on the power of sin. He took it head on by allowing sin to do its worst to him. He suffered under the utter evil of sin, of our sin, human sin. He suffered under crucifixion, torture, humiliation, ridicule. He submitted to that in order to take away sin's claim over our lives. He died a slave's death. He died a death under slavery to sin, just like we would have, in order to offer us a life free from the power of sin. Romans 6, 17 to 18, Paul says, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. This is why Jesus' yoke can be said to be good and light and pleasant. If any other teacher ramped up the law like he did, it would have crushed us. But Jesus, our humble and kind teacher, allowed the crushing judgment of the law to fall upon him instead so that he could set us free so that we would be forgiven and cleansed from our wrongdoings, so that we could serve him in the new way of the Spirit. Jesus' yoke, his teaching, is refreshing to our souls because we can actually begin to walk in it. We can actually begin to enjoy the fruits of walking in it by the power of the Spirit that he's given us. 
Romans 8, Paul says, Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. Paul uses that word to refer to our sinful nature. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by our sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, not according to our sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Did you catch all of that? So Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. Even though the law was powerless to help us because of our sinful inclinations, God helped us. He sent his own son in our likeness to fulfill the law completely. And on top of that, he came as a sin offering. That is, he took our guilt and shame upon himself and died in our place. And everyone who puts their faith in Jesus is joined to him. We're made one with him. His righteousness becomes ours. His freedom becomes ours. He puts his spirit into us and leads us on the path of life. The spirit gives us the ability to obey from the heart the pattern of teaching that is now claimed our allegiance. Jesus, the humble, gentle teacher, has delivered us from our slavery and offers to give us rest. Not by giving us extended annual leave, but by showing us how to live life well. By showing us how to live life well. Well, he invites us to come under his yoke, his teaching, and experience its goodness. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, take your yoke off. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So will you come to him? He says, come to me. Will you come to him? Will you lay down all the other yokes that you've been burdened under? Will you lay down all the other teachings and ideas and mantras that you live by and just come to him? Just lay it at his feet and let him remove those burdens from you and lead your soul into rest and refreshment. That's what he offers you and I today. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We come to you alone, Jesus. Lord, we so easily get our ideas about you confused. We so easily take on other yokes. We so easily forget your truth. And Lord, it ends up crushing us. It ends up burdening us. And Lord, we are, we're sick of running our own lives, our own ways. Lord, we don't want to do that. We know that doesn't lead to life. It leads to anguish. It leads to difficulty. It leads to brokenness. Lord, we just want to come to you. And Jesus, we ask that you would take the yokes that we have placed on ourselves off of us. 
and place your yoke upon us. We want to come under your teaching, your ways. We want to be taught by you. We thank you for who you are. Such a wonderful and gracious and humble teacher who did not merely tell us what to do, but went and did all of it for us on our behalf. He did not merely say, you must do this, but died under the judgment that we deserve so that you could set us free, so that you could fill us with your spirit, so that you could give us a new heart that wants to obey you, that wants to walk with you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this. And Lord, if there are some of us here today that haven't yet said yes to you, haven't yet come to you, Lord, we just take that opportunity to do that now. If we're willing, Lord, we just come to you. We come under your yoke. And Lord, we just ask that you would give us the faith in you to believe that your teaching leads us to life. That when the rubber hits the road, that we would stake our faith in you. And Lord, we pray that as we do that, that we would experience the rest and the refreshment that you offer us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.